Acts chapter 16. Taking just a little break from the miracles of Jesus. There's a lot more miracles to enjoy and unpack, but we're going to take some time to uh, look at the ordinances of the church. And that might sound, uh, you know, ordinances sound kind of serious or legalistic or, you know, sobering. But we're going to talk about them this morning and find out what they are and how they're biblical and how to practice them in the New Testament church. And then we're going to get an opportunity to uh, participate in one if it's something that the Holy Spirit wants us to do. So Acts 16, verse 4. I'm going to just thank God for the word, then I'm going to read it. Father, we thank you for the word this morning. I thank you that you've given us this treasure, the scripture, 66 books, from Genesis to Revelation. You've given us a blueprint for living, wisdom for every situation in life. You've given us comfort. Lord, and we just thank you for the word this morning. So Holy Spirit, open up our hearts and minds as we prepared ourselves through worship to receive the word this morning. Allow it to penetrate through our preconceptions, through our, uh, our baggage, through our wrong theology, and allow it to bring truth and life to our souls. God, we ask all this in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. amen. Acts 16, verse 4, the ordinance of the church. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the ordinances for them to follow, which had been determined by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. So notice, there was movement in the early church. They're moving from city to city. They're preaching the gospel. They're planting churches. They're raising up leaders. And then what do they do? They bring these ordinances, and they give them to each one of the churches, each enclave of Christian worship. They give them these ordinances that came from the apostles and the elders based in the central church in Jerusalem. So these ordinances are important in the structure of the early church. Now, you might hear that word ordinance, and it's not one that we use regularly, although in, you know, town codes and in building codes and all they have, all these things, you might have heard that word before. It's not one we use regularly. The word translated ordinances in the English comes from three Greek words that are in the New Testament. Now, I want to cover these three Greek words here so we can get a working definition of what an ordinance is. The first Greek word is dikeoma. And it means anything declared right. So understand, as Christians, we're to do what's right. First service was a little weak on this when I said that. We're supposed to do what is right. And what's wrong, we're not supposed to do. If you're busy doing the right stuff, you don't have time for the wrong stuff. So this Greek word here means anything declared right, but it's in the sense of ceremonial and religious regulation. So things that happen in the church as a matter of practice, there are ordinances, dikeoma, meaning anything declared right. Who declared it right? Well, it's the apostles' doctrine that the apostles taught and the elders from Jerusalem that they are kind of giving a covering, a loose covering over the churches as they're planted, and they're giving these ordinances to create a good structure in the church. The second word is a word in the Greek you may have heard before. It's dogma, and it means a decree or edict. So a dogma becomes church teaching. So as the apostles and the elders gave these uh, commands and these ordinances for the churches to follow, they became a matter of church teaching. And the last word is paradosis, which means tradition. So when the, 
the elders gave the order and they put it into practice. It becomes something that they do. And then it becomes traditional. But I want you to understand something. It doesn't work the opposite way. We don't take traditions and practice them in the church and call them biblical. Come on. Well, now, you, you can do traditional things. You, you can, you know, the way we celebrate Christmas here, we decorate with all the wreaths and the Christmas trees and all the pagan stuff that people bring. And we, we get the manger going and stuff. And, and I know people like that. There's nowhere in Scripture where it said, thou shalt build an, uh, a manger in the middle of the altar and hang up wreaths all over, says Phil Marcy in Jesus' name. Phil used to love doing this stuff, and I would tease him every year, but, you know, that's a tradition here. So we don't take a tradition that's not necessarily biblical and then call it an ordinance of the church, okay? It's, it works the opposite way. So dikeoma, dogma, and paradosis. A working definition of what an ordinance is would be this. Ordinances of the church are biblical ceremonial practices decreed by God, confirmed by the apostles, and worked into the church as tradition, so understand all the moving parts there from those three Greek words, we get a, a right definition. Uh, ordinances are important because understand the church has stuff to do. There's, you know, more than when we come together, well, you know, well, we like to sing, we sing these songs, and, you know, we, then we take an offering. And the structure of the way we do church, you know, some of that methodology is not so important, but there are some things that Jesus and the Scripture asks us to do. And we've got to make sure we do those things. So what are the basic ordinances of the New Testament church? Now, every denomination has different views of what they are and how to express them in congregational worship. The Catholics have seven sacraments. If you grew up Catholic, you know you got your first communion, you, you got baptized. You know, there's all these things I remember. Uh, I got slapped by the bishop and I was supposed to receive the Holy Ghost. Anybody do that, man? I, I had to kneel down and he smacked me. All I got was smacked. I didn't get the Holy Ghost until after I got born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, amen? But the Catholics call them sacraments. Most Protestant churches call them ordinances. And some denominations in the Protestant sects say that there are as many as 27 of them. I can't find 27 in Scripture, but, you know, I think they're just making stuff up that they like and tacking it in there. Let's look at the seven most practiced biblical ordinances of the New Testament church. Now, these are the most important. They're the ones we find the scriptural basis for. So number one is the Lord's Supper. How many understand coming to the Lord's Supper is not just something you do if you're in a certain denomination. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Amen. And, and so the Lord's Supper, coming for communion together, that is an important ordinance of the church. Some churches make the, the taking of communion the entire focal point of their worship service. Some churches do it weekly. Some churches do it monthly. Every first Sunday of the month, we uh, come to the Lord's Supper together, and Pastor Mike uh, leads us, and we receive communion together. How many understand that that's not just something we do because, you know, it's a full gospel center thing. It's what the Bible's told us to do, amen? So the, the Lord's Supper, Luke 22, 18 through 20. I'm going to throw out some scriptures to support these. The second ordinance of the church is uh, the first two are the most important and the most practiced, and that is water baptism, Matthew 28, 19. Understand, you don't just baptize people if you're in a Baptist church. You baptize people if you're in a Christian church, amen? All Christians need to have baptism worked into their lives. Why? 
because it's something Jesus told us to do. It's something the apostles confirmed. It's something the early church did as a matter of ordinances. Now, water baptism and the Lord's Supper are the top two ones, the most common. I'm sure we've all experienced those. Uh, The third one I want to touch on today is a little different. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't, but anointing the sick. James 5, 13 tells us to anoint the sick. What happens when someone's sick? The elders are to come and they're to take the oil and they're to, you know, put it on them and pray the prayer of faith and the prayer of faith will heal the sick, amen? Listen, healing is not just for certain fringe churches. Healing is not just for evangelicals or charismatics or charismaniacs or whatever you think you are. Healing is part of what Jesus purchased for us on the cross, amen? Read Isaiah 53 and understand the suffering servant. He purchased with the lashes, with the whipping on his back. He, he purchased for us healing in our physical bodies. So what do we do? We, when people are sick, they come to the altar. We, you know, we, I, got, I got my Holy Ghost oil right here. And, you know, it's good Italian extra virgin Holy Ghost. I've been tempted to put some garlic in it, but I didn't. <laughs> you know, so what do we do? People come up, we lay hands on, we pray, and we pray the prayer of healing, amen? And how many people have been healed when someone else prayed for them? Come on, clap your hands if you have been. Amen. <laughs> Healing's not just what happens in those shady churches where, you know, they're a little bit too charismatic. No, healing is part of what the word tells us to do, and anointing the sick is an ordinance of the church. Here's one that kind of goes along with it, the laying on of hands, James 5.14. Remember I said anointing the sick is uh, James 5.13. You continue another verse, and it talks about laying on of hands. Also Acts 19.5-6. Now what's this deal about laying on of hands? The apostles would lay hands on people, and there would be a transfer of anointing. They would lay hands on people when they commissioned them for service, for the five-fold ministry gifts. So laying on of hands, again, is not a fringe thing or a weird thing or a charismatic thing. It's a biblical thing, and it's an ordinance, and we're told to do it. When we have people that go to the mission field, what do we do? We bring them up here, we lay hands on them. Remember, we had our hands all over Charles, and we sent them out. Why do we do that? Because it's our culture? It's our custom? No, because it's what the Bible tells us to do. So we lay hands on them, we pray a prayer of faith, and we send them. So that's an ordinance of the church. So when you see these things happen in church, don't just think, oh, that's the way they do it here. No, that's what the Bible tells us to do. Now, there's also number five, is assembling of ourselves together. Realize something, coming to church on the Lord's Day to worship together with the body of Christ is not an option. It's just not a nice thing that really super committed Christians do. No, it's what the Bible tells us to do. Hebrews 10.25 tells us to assemble together. So remember, the word says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together so much more as you see the day approaching. I don't know about you, but it gets darker and darker every day outside, amen? And I'm looking looking for the return of Jesus every day. And so we need to be together. I, I don't know how people make it through this season of lockdowns and COVID and all and stuff and when they're cloistered and they're all by themselves and they don't have a family around them. We, what, a, what a gift we have in the family of God to have our brothers and sisters, amen? You know, I, I enjoy being with you guys. 
On Monday night, we've been having men's Bible study, and I get to be with my brothers, and we hang out, and we talk, and you know, I, I sit there. Uh, uh, we always hit break into small groups, and I, I, and I get to the couches first and beat everybody else there, and then our group hangs out, and I just could do that for hours. And if you're looking at me, you better cut this service short. And <laughs> Behold how good and how pleasant it is. When brethren dwell together in unity, amen? The older I get, the sweeter fellowship is to me. The less I think I need to do and know that this is what's important. So it's a, something that the Bible tells us as an ordinance to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Yes, be here on the Lord's Day. Be here on Wednesday. Be here for men's meetings, women's ministry. Be here whenever you can because it'll be a blessing to your life, and the Bible tells us to do it. Now, number six is where it's going to get, how do I say this, a little awkward? Now you're curious. We talked about this in first service. Foot washing is actually, in John 13, 14, an ordinance of the church. Jesus, remember, he put a towel on himself, he knelt down, and he washed his disciples' feet. Do you remember that? Now, that wasn't just a Jesus thing. Wow, Jesus being Jesus, look at him go. That's really humble, washing these, these guys, you know, these fishermen with their, you know, their feet probably look like they could swoop down and catch their dinner out of a lake, you know. Here's Jesus, and he's down there, and he's washing. What a humble thing. Isn't that awesome for Jesus? And Jesus said, hey, if I wash your feet, you should wash each other's feet. And when he said each other, he meant the body of Christ. Now, listen to me. It can be awkward sometimes, you know, with this foot washing thing. I, I remember a couple times I got cornered and people chased me around with a basin and said, Pastor, we're going to wash your feet. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, can I, can I take a rain check? But washing each other's feet is more than just taking a basin and a towel. Washing each other's feet is serving one another, considering others better than yourself. That, it's that heart of service. Brian, I remember at your wedding, you had that foot washing ceremony as part of the wedding. That was so, so unique and so cool. Uh, but it, it's a symbol that husbands and wives serve each other. And as Christians, we should serve one another and humble ourselves to do it. Amen. How many realize sometimes it takes humility to serve another person? Amen. So foot washing, uh, you know, it is an ordinance of the church. And number seven, I'll cover this last one the christian greeting is an ordinance of the church we're to greet each other there are three types of greetings given in the new testament the first is greeting by name third john one through four when you just say you know brother so-and-so sister so-and-so pastor mike you know we greet each other that's that's the first type of greeting that we're told to give in the new testament church then there's a greeting by the right hand of fellowship in galatians Two, nine. So you're extending your right hand. It could be a handshake. It could be a hug. But you're showing uh, fellowship and connection between our brothers and sisters. Amen. How many, when you come to church, somebody say, hi, so-and-so, and they give you a handshake or a hug? Isn't that, you know, that's part of what it means to be the, the family of God, the body of Christ. Amen. Now, the third expression of greeting that's listed in the New Testament church is greeting with a holy kiss. And Romans 16, 16 talks about greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, let me just give a warning on this one. Guys, if you want to kiss each other, good. Ladies, if you want to kiss each other, good. But don't let me catch you guys chasing the ladies around trying to kiss the girls. Huh? We, we, had, we had one brother who used to do that, chase my wife around all the time. So we had to sit him down, and he's never been seen again. No, I mean, he, he, he repented. and Let's get this stuff right, okay? 
but we're to greet each other. And the Bible tells us why. Why? Because it shows that we're connected. We're a part of the family of God. We're brothers and sisters. It's not like, wow, you, you know, I feel like you're my brother. I feel like you're my sister. We are the family of God. Amen. E- even more than our own family sometimes. You know, many people come from a, a broken family structure, and this is the only family they know. And so these are the seven most practiced ordinances of the church. Um, from all of these ordinances, I want to focus on one of them. The first two are the most important, but today I want to focus on water baptism. And the reason I want to talk to you about water baptism is because I'm, I'm trying to stir up your faith to, uh, so you understand the theology and the application of water baptism because on Sunday, November 14th, we're going to have water baptism in both services and we're going to baptize everybody and anybody who wants to make a public declaration that they have given their life to Jesus Christ. Amen. So November 14th, I want you to write that down, write it down in your notes, write it in your Bible. If you have not been baptized in water, you know, you need to seriously be here and get in that. Now, for those of you who are new here, we haven't done this in a while because of COVID and all the restrictions and stuff, and we try to honor some of that. But that cross is a special cross. It's magic. It opens up. And behind that wall is a baptismal tank, and we have, for for years, for decades, we've baptized people in there and seen God touch their lives and, and break old habits and do amazing things. So that's going to be opened up on the 14th, and some of you are going to be in there, and it's going to be a memorable, awesome time. Almost every church has different methodologies when it comes to baptizing people in water. Some sprinkle, some dunk, some believe in total immersion, some pour like a little cup over your head. They do it in ponds. They do it in pools. You know, if you're in California, you got to get baptized in the ocean. That's what they do in California. You know, it's almost like it doesn't work unless you do it in the ocean. But you know, California's a little different. They, they do that sort of stuff. But I, I don't care if it's in a tub or a tank or a lake or a, the ocean. If you do it with a fire hose, a water gun, uh, a super soaker, I don't care. And the reason I don't care about the methodology too much is because in the end, all that matters is that we do it with the right theology, with the right expectation, and with the right heart. And that's why we take the time to talk about it, because we need to know as an ordinance of the church, what the Bible says about water baptism, who's a candidate for it, why we should do it, and what happens when we do. So I want to teach you a little bit about that today. And to understand water baptism, I want to tell you to start off four things that it is not. Sometimes you can learn best what something is by defining what it's not. I know we all come from different backgrounds, different cultures, different churches, different theological perspectives. But, you know, whatever baggage we bring with us today, here's what the Bible says, four things that water baptism is not. Water baptism, number one, is not salvation. You know, you get water baptized, and that's a separate event from salvation. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But there are some churches that say when we baptize you in water, now you're saved. The Bible does not teach that. Uh, We're going to talk about infant baptism and some of these things, but I want you to understand right out of the box, don't expect salvation when you get in that tank. You need to be saved before you head up to there, amen? 
We're going to talk about that a little bit, but water baptism is not salvation. There are many churches that say, well, you're automatically saved once you're baptized, and the Scripture doesn't say that. There are churches that say, well, if you die before you are baptized, you'll go to hell. The Scripture doesn't say that. I don't know any time that Jesus pulled the thief off the cross when he said to them, today you'll be with me in paradise, and, and dunked them real quick behind Golgotha. You know, he didn't just say, time out, you know, take them down. And da, 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 da. No, that didn't happen. Okay, so water baptism and salvation are separate things. Mark 16, 16 says, the one who has believed and has been baptized will be saved, but the one who has not believed will be condemned. It's belief that saved us. We believe, then we're baptized, two separate events, but the water doesn't save us, the belief does, amen? Uh, these are two separate things. Now listen to Romans 10, 9, and 10. This is the bottom line on belief. We're saved by expressing our faith to God, and then he gives us grace and the free gift of salvation. Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So see, it's a confession of the mouth. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So nothing about water baptism there, all about confession and belief. It's the belief that saves us, and then the, the step we take after our belief is to go in the waters of baptism. Now listen to me. It does no good putting a person in the baptismal tank and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit if they're not saved. You'll just go in a dry sinner and come out a wet sinner, amen? It, it's useless. It's like, it's like a shower or a bath in church. That's not what we're after today. Water baptism is not salvation. Number two, water baptism is not the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to listen to a very important scripture today, Acts 2.38. If you're taking notes, write Acts 2.38 down, listen to it, and then commit it to memory. Get it in your heart. Peter said to them, now he's preaching, people are getting saved. He says, repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that there? There's the biblical sequence. Repent and believe, get baptized in water and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, amen? All three separate events. You know, many times we baptize people in water and the Holy Spirit just overcomes them. They come out of the water. We've had people coming out of the water speaking in tongues, filled with the Holy Ghost, just powerful stuff. But there's an order here. It's belief first, then it's water baptism, then it's received the free gift of the Holy Spirit. That manifestation, the evidences of not only speaking in tongues, but producing fruit and a changed life, Amen. When we're saved, we receive a measure of the Holy Spirit. When we're baptized in water, that obedience releases a blessing on our life, and then we can receive a fuller measure of the Holy Spirit, amen? A greater infilling of the Holy Ghost. Anybody want more of the Holy Ghost? Amen. So believe, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. Three separate events. Water baptism is not uh, the, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Certainly, you can receive it in the waters of baptism. We will pray that you do. But uh, understand, there's an order and a structure there. Uh, and we're not baptizing people unless they have a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's look at the third thing that water baptism is not. It's not salvation. It's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Number three, it's not instant sanctification or holiness. 
Some churches teach that, you know, when you go in that water, you, you get delivered from the old nature and sin, and you're never going to sin again. You're going to come out of those waters perfectly free. You're going to walk right, talk right. You know, you're going to just be, uh, you know, you're going to be perfect, and there's going to be holiness in your life. Now, listen to me. Absolutely, things change. Absolutely, the old nature is dealt with. Absolutely, there's freedom in the waters of baptism. But the truth is, and I don't want you to have the wrong expectation, we're, we all sin, and you, you, when you get, now, the, the, some churches that are into that holiness, they'll teach, well, you know, well, if you sin, then it didn't work, so you've got to get saved again and redunked. Now, if you want to get redunked, that's fine. I've known people get dunked three or four times. It's not one per customer. You, 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 if you've got to get back in there, the Bible talks about doing your first works again. There's sometimes we go off and we go astray. We go on a tangent. We walk away from the Lord. And what we repent, we do our first works over. And you might, you might have been water baptized and say, you know, I really committed myself to Christ now. I want to get in there again. Amen. That's fine. But it's not that you're going to come out and live perfectly. And I want you to have that expectation because that leads to disappointment and that leads to disillusionment. And many people walk away from the faith because they think, well, God rejected me or I, I'm not really saved or, you know, I'm not perfect. And so uh, understand, it's not holiness. It's not instant sanctification. It's a chance to deal with the old nature. Uh, and it's something that's very powerful. Now listen to 1 John 1 eight through nine, and this tells us all the truth we need to know about how we deal with sin in our lives. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. But wait a minute, I'm water baptism, I'm perfect, I'm super Christian now. No, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, amen? We're, we're always, unfortunately, going to struggle with sin to some degree. We don't give ourselves over to it. We don't yield our members to it. But until the day we die and we're delivered from what Paul called this body of sin, the older you get, you understand this. You look in the mirror and you're like, yeah, this is a body of sin. And I want out. And when I get out of it, then I'm going to be free from it. Amen. Until that day, we confess. He forgives. He restores us. And we go right back to serving him with all our hearts. Number four, the fourth thing that water baptism is not, it's not salvation, it's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's not instant sanctification, and it is not for infants. Now, a lot of us were baptized as infants. I was. Uh, most of us, you know, maybe grew up in uh, churches where they did that. Now, water baptism for infants is really not for infants, it's for the parents, because you know what, when they dunked me or sprinkled me or held me under, they might have held me under too long, but whatever they did, it was from my parents because I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. I don't remember it, and I didn't say I wanted to do it. So it was for them to say, we're going to raise this kid in the church to be a Christian uh, under the word of God. You, do you understand? It's for the parents. And, you know, we do ba baby dedications here, the, the Jewish custom to present the children in the temple. Uh, we do that sort of thing, and that's kind of, you know, for the parents to present the children and say that we're going to raise them uh, in the Lord. And that's something that we're going to continue to do. But understand, that baptism is not for infants, and I'll tell you why. Because the only prerequisite to being water baptized is that you're saved. And to be saved, you have to repent from your sin and ask Jesus to come into your heart and be saved, right? So here's the problem now. Children, babies, infants can't repent and can't acknowledge sin and can't ask Jesus to come into their heart. 
It's intellectually uh, and, and, and spiritually impossible for them. You know, if I got all the children out of the nursery and all the babies and you put them on the altar and I preach the Holy Ghost fire and brimstone message to the infants, <laughs> repent you infants for the kingdom of God is at hand. <laughs> repent you babies. They're just gonna, they're not gonna repent. They're gonna cry, they're gonna scream, they're gonna look at me. I'm gonna get hit with pacifiers. They're going to fill up their diapers, and that's all that's going to happen. Because babies don't have the intellectual capacity to repent. And so water baptism is not for infants. The Bible has always taught throughout the entire New Testament a believer's baptism. Believe and be baptized, and you shall receive the Holy Ghost. Come on, there's your order. Now remember, we don't take church tradition that's not biblical, and make it an ordinance of the church. That's backwards. So, you know, we don't baptize infants here. We baptize believers. Jesus himself was not baptized as an infant. He was baptized by John when he was in his 30s. You remember that scene? John's got him. John's like, you should be baptizing me. Jesus said, just do it, John. John puts him in the water. The Father speaks from heaven. The Holy Ghost comes down like a dove. You got a perfect picture of the entire Trinity right there at Jesus' baptism, and he wasn't a baby. He was a 30-something-year-old man. So, Understand, cover to cover, the Bible teaches a believer's baptism. So now you know four things that baptism is not. Let me close with four things that baptism is. Number one, water baptism is a commanded ordinance of the church. This is not something we do if we feel like it or do if it fits into our program or do if the people like it. We do this because Jesus told us to, the, 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 the early apostles told us to. It's part of the church structure. It's become tradition, and it is an ordinance of the church. You know, we don't just baptize people here because of our denomination. You would think, well, Baptists, they got to baptize people, but, you know, charismatics, maybe not. Or, no, all Christian churches must baptize people. Now, there again, I don't care about the methodology. They, they don't, maybe don't have a Holy Ghost cross in the tub and the tank, and, you know, and that's fine. Whatever you got to do to get it done, but it is something that the Lord expects us to do. We baptize people because Jesus said so. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, I find it interesting that that call to go there is connected to evangelism and discipleship. That's important too, right? We should be, we should be leading people to Christ, amen? He who wins souls is wise. You got lost family, you got lost friends, you got lost co-workers, be praying for them. Tell them about Jesus. Invite them to church, amen? And we're to make disciples out of them. But, you know, Jesus also said that we had to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we do this because Jesus said so. On November 14th, it's not because Pastor Rick had a bright idea, it's because Jesus said so. Number two, the second thing water baptism is, is water baptism is the believer's first step of obedience. Believe, then what? Be baptized. The first step of obedience after salvation is to be baptized in water. You know, I want to say something about first steps. If you have children, you know that first steps are precious. First through everything. Come on. You, you, you know, we have videos and all the things, and here's Junior taking the first step, and, you know, my mom saved my baby shoes, got them bronzed, I think, didn't throw anything out. You got all that stuff, right, if I need it. 
But you know, it's important to parents first steps, you know, and, and we remember these things and they're precious. Well, I want to say something to you today. Our first steps of obedience, our first steps of faith are precious to our Father in heaven. Amen. Water baptism becomes a remembrance and a memorial in our hearts, uh, our connection to God, that we've made a public display that we want to serve Jesus and that we are set apart for the things of the kingdom. Amen. So water baptism is the first step of obedience. You know, people will make all kinds of excuses not to take the first step. Well, they'll say, well, I did it as a baby. Well, we've already shown that 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 doesn't really satisfy the command, the ordinance to do it because it's a believer's baptism. Unless you were born saved, talking about Jesus, gaga, goo, goo, and filled with the Holy Ghost, at some point you repented of your sin and got saved, and now you need to get water baptized after that. So that excuse is done, and we got, we got to let that go. Some people say, well, you know, I, I, it's embarrassing. I got to get up there. I don't look good wet. You know, I've been doing this a long time. I've heard every excuse you could think of, you know. I used to have a dog that was a collie. He didn't look good wet either, amen. Where did he go? Well, well he's wet. So, you know, yeah, it might be a little humbling, but we're your family today, Amen. You know, everybody's going to look at me and stuff. Yeah, but listen to me. That little bit of awkwardness is going to be eclipsed by the amazing blessing that comes from being obedient. Amen. The release of God's favor over your life, it's worth it. We'll we'll get a towel on you. We'll hustle you through the back. We'll blow dry you. Whatever we got to (laughs) do. Believe me, it all goes on back there. It's a a well-oiled machine. But don't be scared. Don't make excuses. It is, you know the first step of obedience, and it's worth taking that step because every act of obedience we do in the Lord is met with a release of God's blessing in our life. It's first steps, and they bless our Heavenly Father. Number three, water baptism is how we identify with Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 3 through 5 says it all when it comes to identifying with Christ. Listen to Romans 6, 3 through 5. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, there it is, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too will walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Look, everybody likes the resurrection. Everybody likes that resurrection power. Everybody likes the freedom that comes from being clean and pure and new and free. But, but you have to be obedient to get there, amen? This is identifying. When you go in that tank and, and you're in there, what, what, what is happening? When you're in the water, that's symbol, symbolic of Jesus's, you know, going to the cross and being obedient. Then when we dunk you under, that's symbolized uh, death and burial. Now, if you don't think that's true, we'll hold you under to the bubble slow down, and you'll see, yeah, I'm going to die here if they don't let me up. So that burial and the death is symbolic of Jesus's. And then when we lift you out, it's the resurrection power, amen, the newness of life. Woo! I didn't, I didn't like the cross so much, but the empty tomb is pretty awesome, amen? He is risen. So uh, it's identifying with Christ. And you and I as Christians, that word literally means little Christ. We are to be conformed to his image. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. But it's so powerful when we identify with him in his death, burial, 
and resurrection. He gives us power to live a new life, to overcome the flesh, to impact others, and to live in the blessing of God. How many people want that in their life? Amen. Number four, the last thing that water baptism is, I close with this. Water baptism is an opportunity to be set free. Now, you're not going to come out perfect. You're not going to come out completely holy. Positionally, you're holy in Christ if you're under the blood. Positionally, you know, you're sanctified. It's a process. It's a work. You're not going to be perfect, but you are going to be delivered from some things in the water of baptism. I can guarantee it. You're going to be delivered from the old nature, the old man. You're going to be delivered from the past, amen? Water baptism is a great place to draw a line on your past so that you can forget it and never look back at it, amen? Baptism is a great place for you to deal with the old nature. You remember before you were saved, the the old things that you did, the things that you thought, the places you went, and the people you liked, it, it all changes when you're in Christ, But yet the enemy tries to suck us back into our past or he tries to remind us of our past. Listen to me, the the past of our life gets drowned in the waters of baptism, amen? And it never has to afflict us again. We drown it till it's gone so there's nothing to go back to. I've seen people delivered from all kinds of things in the waters of baptism, from drugs and from alcohol, from smoking cigarettes, from impure things, from lust, from sexual impurity, all those things. People, in fact, I'm going to ask for for testimonies from, if you have a testimony about water baptism and something God did in your life, I want you to come see me or call the office because we're we're probably going to share some of those testimonies on Sunday morning as we do our water baptism. Because I want want those point of faith. I want to know what God's done in your life because he's done some amazing things, amen? But, but deliverance and freedom and burying the old nature, and you're going to come out with a, with a clean slate and a fresh start. Amen? Water baptism is an awesome opportunity. It is an ordinance of the church. It's something Jesus commanded us to do. It's not salvation. It's not the reception of the gift of the Holy Spirit, but it is an opportunity for us to bury our past, to get free from the old nature, and to walk in newness of life. It is an act of obedience that will release the blessing of God into your life. Let's bow our heads today. Father, I just thank you this morning for the ordinances of the church, for the things you've told us to do, Lord, uh, because they're powerful and they're moments where we can meet with you. Father, I pray for everyone within the sound of my voice, for my brothers and sisters, for the family of God here at Full Gospel Center. Father, each one of them that needs to take that step of obedience, I pray you'd give them boldness. Father, I pray that you'd melt every excuse and that with joy and anticipation, they would sign up and get ready to meet you in those waters, to bury their past once and for all, to deal with the old nature once and for all, and to walk in resurrection power. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Give him praise this morning.